Amen. Every December, I get the opportunity to go to, back to Mississippi and spend some time with my father-in-law and brother-in-law as we go to a deer camp just north of Vicksburg. Now, there's many things if you've been to a deer camp that surround the lore of a deer camp. Oh, one of the most particular things about the deer camp is the moment that you get to either sit around the living room or around the mess hall and get to hear all of these old men tell the stories of their past. That's one of the rites of initiation into a deer camp. You just got to listen. And there's no telling whether or not it's true, but that's really beside the point. The question is how entertaining is it? And as you begin to go from year to year, you begin to find that the stories have slight alterations. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Is the story entertaining? That's the question. And it's interesting, I can't help but imagine David sitting around with some of his friends, maybe some others in his court or others in his army, recounting some of his old stories. I can't help but imagine as he told this one story that Claire just read, people would be looking around going, is this guy making this stuff up? That Claire, in fact, no, a scripture, she did a wonderful job, but this week she emailed back and said, are you sure this is the passage you want me to read in, in the service? Yes, the reason why is as we turn our attention now to Psalm 34, that story is the background uh, for the psalm that we'll give our attention to now. So if you have your Bibles, you go ahead and grab them. Uh, turn to Psalm chapter 34. We'll be looking at its entirety, all 22 verses. And we know this because in the superscript right underneath is, again, inspired. This isn't added later. The, the, verse, the chapter numbers, the verse numbers, and the titles, like the headings in your Bible, were all added afterwards to help give organization and reference. But these superscripts in the Psalms are inspired. They're in the text themselves. Uh, and in the script here, what we see is this is a psalm concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech who drove him out and he departed. So again, as Claire mentioned uh, in red, David was on the run from Saul, fearing his life. He had nowhere else to go. So David said, okay, I can't be in my country because they're trying to kill me. I can't go to Saul. He's trying to kill me. Let me go to another country. They also hate Saul. And so maybe the enemy of my enemy will be my friend. So he goes to this city in Philistia known as Gath, and he tries to find refuge. Here's a problem, Bible trivia for you this morning. Do you know who else is from the city of Gath? Goliath. Well done. That was a number of people that got that. Um, well done. Uh, you would do well on Bible Jeopardy. Goliath also from the city of Gath. So here's the problem. David had killed Goliath not too long ago. And walks into this city now where he had defeated their champion. Not only that, but the people are aware of the songs that are being written by, uh, about David. Right? The folk songs in Israel at the time, written by their modern day Carol King and James Taylor, were proclaiming that Saul may have killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. This was the number one hit across the land at this time. The people in Philistia had heard it. And they come to the king and go, hey, you realize this guy. You know who he is, right? He's killed tens of thousands. He's killed Goliath. So David's plan's beginning to fall apart, and the king is convinced. And he's like, okay, I'm going to have to deal with this. David sees what's happening, and what's his plan? To act like he's crazy. He gets a graffiti can, begins to go on the walls, and he's letting saliva dribble down his beard, hoping that perhaps it will convince him. And I love the king's reaction. I have enough crazy people here already. Do I need another one? We were reading it in the, our Grove Kids meeting beforehand, and one of the moms raised her hand and said, I feel kind of the same way as the king there. <laughs> David then is let go. The king drives him out. He departs. 
And it's interesting, as David recounts this story, you would imagine he would be telling all the details or his plan or his strategy, his unbelief that his plan actually worked. Maybe that's the way that he would recount it. But I want you to listen now as we read before we jump into the text. Listen to how David recounts that story. And listen particularly as David highlights not his cunning, but God's faithfulness. Psalm 34 says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? And keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil. To remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. That's David's recounting of 1 Samuel 21. It was the Lord that rescued him. Friends, as we look at this text, we'll look in three different sections as David describes God's faithfulness. And we'll see what what we can do in our relationship to God. First, we'll see that you can praise him. See this in verses 1 through 3. Second, we'll see that you can cry to him. See this in verses 4 through 7. Finally, we'll see that you can trust him. The largest section here in verses 8 through 22. David, in recounting his story, is trying to apply these truths to people that would hear it to encourage you to see that you can praise him, you can cry to him, and you can trust him. First, he's trying to get us to understand that we can praise him. You hear that in verses 1 through 3. It's an invitation. Right, listen to these words. I will bless the Lord. I will boast in the Lord. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. David's focus here is on praising God for who he is, lifting up and exalting his name. Two things I want us to note here in these three verses. I want us to note first the tense 
of the verb that's repeated. And second, I want us to note the frequency of which we are to praise. The tense and the frequency. As you notice what David doesn't say, he doesn't, doesn't say, I praise the Lord in that circumstance. Past tense. He doesn't even refer to present tense. Let us praise together right now. There's uh, Here in verses 1 and 2, look at the tense. He says, I will bless the Lord and I will boast. His praise will always be on my lips. Where is David looking here at his praise? In the future. Not in the past and what God has done. Not even in his present circumstance. He's looking into the future and going, I will praise him. He's making the decision beforehand. David is just walking out of an incredibly difficult situation. And that's particularly who this psalm is for. For those that feel like they're in a rock and a hard place. Those that feel like they have nowhere else to turn. Those that feel broken hearted, oppressed, crushed underneath the weight of life and the brokenness of this world. David writes then a psalm for you. And the first note that he gives here is one of a commitment as you go forward in your life to continue to praise him and to bless him and to boast in him. It's a future tense. Friends, your praise should be predetermined. I will. Not based on your circumstance. It is not reactionary. Your praise is not connected to how great your life might be. But look at verse 3. It's founded on how great your God is. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. It's fixed. The second thing to note is the frequency of which this praise should happen. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And David's writing the psalm again to the brokenhearted. And he's holding out hope, saying that there is hope in every situation for your lips still to praise. As we'll see, that doesn't mean God will come and just correct the situation and make your life easier. What David's writing is about something much greater, that there is this fixed joy, this fixed contentment in your life that no matter what comes your way, you can still praise him. That's what's possible in relationship to him at all times and always, no matter how good or no matter how bad your circumstances might be. There is never a moment unworthy of praise. Because it's not looking around. It's looking up. And our God never changes. He is always the same. There's no shadow of turning with him. So David begins first to invite us to praise, telling us, showing us that you can praise him because he is worthy. Because God is worthy. And the second thing that David turns to then is he turns and begins to recount his experience, his personal testimony and interspersing it with some truth and teaching application to our lives. So secondly, we see that David's trying to help us understand that you can cry to him. You can cry to him, verses 4 through 7. You can hear the weight of what David's walking through. I sought the Lord. He was surrounded by fears. He was worried his face would be ashamed. This poor man cried out to God. In David's circumstance, again, he was trapped. He was under the weight of fear. 
But when David cried out, what does he note that God did? Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard. David cried out and God heard him. Oh, friends, this is something we see throughout the Bible. We see perhaps most powerfully in the very beginning of the book of Exodus, in Exodus 2. As the people of Israel have been taken into slavery by Egypt, the promise to Abraham, this, uh, this promise of God making this nation great and blessing Abraham and his uh, descendants so that they would be a blessing to the nation, seemed like that promise had gone and their experience was very disconnected from God's promise. And there in slavery in Egypt, they cried out. And what does Exodus 2 tell us? God saw and God heard them. And friends, we see this throughout the Bible. There are some who may claim that God is a God who uh, maybe like a clock winds up a clock, a clockmaker that winds up a clock and uh, steps it, uh, designs it, makes it, winds it up. But then he sets it on the counter and steps back and lets it go. Some people may view God that way. I mean, he designed the universe, created it, set everything in motion, but now he's kind of hands off. He's not involved, maybe in some of the bigger issues of life, but not in, in the little minutia of, of my life. There's no way he cares about me. He's too busy holding galaxies together. He's not worried about my fear, the, the shame that I'm worried about. My friends, that's what the enemy will tell you. And it's important that in times like that, you open up, Verses like Psalm 34, Exodus 2 are just about most places in the Bible. And what you'll find is God is not like that at all. We'll get there eventually in 1 Peter when we jump back there in the fall, but, or 2 Peter. The invitation is to cast your cares on the Lord, which is an incredible invitation from God. Every care that you have, all the anxiety, all the fear, cast them on Him. But even more incredible than the invitation is the reason why. And Peter said the reason why we should cast our cares on him is listen to this. Because he cares. Because he cares for you. Because he cares about the things in your life. If you're a parent and you have a child that maybe they come to you with a problem that feels like it's perhaps blown out of proportion, whatever it might be. They come and maybe... The stars that um, they have a little machine that shines stars up on their ceiling at night so they help them sleep. Maybe those stars have grown dim and they come out in tears because the stars are broken. How will they be? I, that, that person understands. <laughs> How will they be able to fall asleep? And you can see the fear. Now, as a parent, there's something in you that clicks in. And what clicks in in those moments, in the smallest of moments, whatever it might be, when you see something affecting your child, you step in and you care why, because it's your child. So what I don't say is I look at them and go, you know what, listen, it's fine. Just go back in there. You can still kind of see the stars. And listen, they're not even real stars anyway. So just close your eyes and go to bed. But no, I take it. I look at it. I see that it's probably the same problem it's always been. We need new batteries, get the screwdriver, new batteries are in. And as a father, I care about that issue because I care about my child. Friends, this is what we see the, the, the picture painted in the scriptures. The God of the galaxies is the God of your cares, the God of your fears. And you can cast them on him because he cares for you. And when you cry to him, you will not find a distracted parent 
You will not find a pre-engaged parent. You will not find a condescending parent. You will find a compassionate parent. You will find a father that is listening and a father that hears. David cried out and the Lord heard him. And God not only heard him, but the other thing we see is that God had the power to do something about it. God didn't just hear and go, David, I'm so sorry. That sounds hard. God then stepped in and rescues him. Go through Psalm 34 and just highlight all the time David uses the word rescue or rescued. It's all throughout. David knows that while he may have had this ridiculous plan, what made it happen was not his cunning, but it was his dependence on God as he cried out to him in the halls before he's in there about to open the door go, okay, I'm about to walk out of here with spit dripping down my beard and going to go right on walls. God, I, this is not going to work, so I need your help. That's the part of 1 Samuel we don't see, but that's what David tells us here in Psalm 34. That was the power in the plan. Not his cunning, but God's presence and his rescue. This is just so instructive for us in our life, in our churches, whatever it might be, to help us see what David didn't do. David didn't go, you know what? I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to think. I'm just going to let God take over. David thought, David came up with a plan, a crazy plan at that, but it was a plan. And he enacted. But notice the other thing David didn't do. David didn't rely on his plan. He didn't rely on his strategy. He had a plan, but he depended on God. It's both and. No matter what situation you may be in right now, there is a danger for us to perhaps try to think our way out of it or plan our way out of it. I feel this particularly as a, as a parent of young children. I can feel the weight that if I do all the right parenting strategies, I can control this outcome. Friends, it's not true. There is no amount of goal setting or planning that can change a child's heart. Only God can do that. That doesn't mean then I just go, you know what? I'm just not going to do anything with parenting since God's doing it. No, it's both and. God, let me see wisdom in your scriptures for how to parent. Let me try to be the best parent that I can. But let me take all of that and give it to you knowing that it's useless. Unless the Lord builds its house, I'm going to be laboring in vain. What we see here with David, it was God who rescued him. He had the power to not only the compassion to hear and the power to rescue. And notice, especially the language in verses 4 and 5, David's talking about the emotion in the situation. He sought the Lord and the Lord answered him, rescued him from all of his fears. And that those who look to him, that, that those who take their eyes off their circumstances and fix their eyes on God are then radiant with what? With joy. That there is real and fixed joy that's found when we turn our eyes to Jesus. And our faces will never be ashamed. That David finds deliverance from fear and shame as he looks and fixes his eyes and uh, turns his eyes to God and finds joy in him. Oh, friends, that's what he's holding out here in this great hope. And why is that the case? He gives this description in verse 7. He said, here's why. It's because the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears him and rescues them. This phrase, angel of the Lord, is used a number of times in the Old Testament. And it's often used in equivalence with God himself. Some see this as a, what's known in theology as a Christophany, 
or it's a, a, it's a appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Whether or not that's true um, and whether or not where you may land on that is, is, is not as important as seeing the way in which the angel of the Lord is often equated with God himself. What David is writing here is that the angel of the Lord, God himself, is encamping, is finding his home and his dwelling next to those who fear him, next to those who love him. And part of his job to be so close is to be there whenever they cry out, he steps in to rescue them. And I think that what David's doing here in verse 7 is pulling on this image from earlier in the Bible in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 to 20. Right after the Passover, after the ten plagues, Passover meal, Pharaoh releases the Israelites from captivity. They're free. They begin to walk, eventually get to the Red Sea. When they get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, what have I done? I've made a terrible mistake. I need to go and get them back. Releases his army, the greatest army in the known world at the time, to go and capture these slaves who were not trained, who had no army, who had old men, women, children. They were malnourished. It would be an easy fight. And as he begins to track them down, we get this picture in Exodus 14. That as the Israelites were going, they were led by this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Exodus 14, 19, and 20, as the Egyptian army closes in, hear this description. Then the angel of God, describing this pillar, the angel of God who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was a cloud and darkness and it lit up the night. And neither group came near the other all night long. Do You see what this cloud did that was this angel of God that was encamped with the Israelites? Moved and protected them from their enemies so that they could do nothing. And what ended up happening? Moses took his staff drove it into the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts, they walk through. As the Egyptians begin to follow, God closes the sea and they're all killed. And what we see from the, in that story is that what is not determinative for God's people is their strength or their weakness. Also, it is not the strength of their enemy. The determining factor in the fight is the presence of God. So much so that you know, what Mo, you know what God needed to defeat the Egyptians, the greatest army on earth? He needed an 80-year-old guy with a stick. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He is encamped around those who fear him. He is with us. Friends, that's the, the promise that David's pulling on here in 34 verse 7, that God is near us. The angel of God is encamped around us. He's set up a mobile home. He's in his RV just driving alongside us, ready with us at all times. This is the great promise of Christmas, that Jesus' name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And there is, I think, a, a, a misunderstanding about what that promise means primarily. I know that I can sometimes, I've read that in the past, God with us, and I read that almost as a promise of sympathy. Jesus is with us. He is one of us. He understands us. He is a sympathetic high priest. 
He is alongside me. So as I walk through pain and suffering, when I go to him, I will find a sympathetic high priest who is there with me. He's gone through the same thing as me. And friends, that is true. That's true of God. It's incredible truth of God. But I don't think that's the primary application of this promise, God being with us. When you look through the Bible, the application of this promise, God with us, is not primarily about sentimentality, but it's one of strength. It's one of God's people that find themselves facing an opponent greater than themselves that they can't overcome, and God steps in and goes, I am with you. The God of angel armies is on your side. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? So we can stare enemies in our life, whether it be sin, whether it be sickness, whether it be death itself, our great enemy. And we can say, I cannot conquer you on my own. But my confidence and my hope is not in my ability, but it's in the one who is encamped next to me. He is with me. That's what you see over and over again in Exodus, in Joshua, in Isaiah, where the prophecy comes from. It's all getting to that idea that God is not a God who is distant. He is a God who is next to us. So that no matter what situation you may be in, you can have the confidence for those that trust in Christ that he is with you. He will walk beside you through it and he will deliver, rescue, and redeem you. He will never leave you or forsake you. This is the hope of David's situation in verses 4 through 7. Oh, and friends, this is what we need in a broken world. And so if you're in a situation like David, where you hear this description of being brokenhearted or crushed in spirit, you hear that description, you go, that's me. Oh, friends, in that season, what we need is a Jesus that can rescue us from that. Not sentimentality. I love this quote from Johnny Erickson Tata, a wonderful author and speaker. If you're not, I say this all the time when I talk about her. If you haven't read anything or listened to anything that she's done, just go and buy everything. She's wonderful. She's a quadriplegic. She was, um, she was uh, injured when she was a teenager. Uh, she was a pre-Olympic athlete, but was one day diving and dove into too shallow of water and broke her neck and lost all ability to use her arms and her legs. She's a two-time sur- survivor of breast cancer, continues just incredible ministry. And looking at suffering and God's sovereignty. How do we walk through these together? And in describing what sufferers need, those who are crushed in spirit and brokenhearted, I love the way she describes this. She says, here at our ministry, we refuse to present a picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. A portrait that tugs at your sentiments or pulls at your heartstrings. That's because we deal with so many people who suffer. And when you're hurting hard, you're neither helped nor inspired by a syrupy picture of the Lord, like those sugary, sentimental images that many of us grew up with. You know what I mean? Jesus with his hair parted down the middle, surrounded by cherubic children and bluebirds. Come on and admit it. When your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, when you feel like Morton's salt is being poured into your wounded soul, you don't want a thin, pale, emotional Jesus who relates only to lambs and birds and babies. You want a warrior Jesus. 
You want a battlefield, Jesus. You want a rigorous and a robust gospel to command your sensibilities and to stand at attention. To be honest, many of the sentimental hymns and gospel songs of our heritage don't do much to hone that image. One of the favorite words of hymn writers in days gone past was sweet. It's a term that doesn't have the edge on it that it once did. And when you're in a dark place, when lions surround you, when you need strong help to rescue you from impossibility, you don't want sweet. You don't want faded pastels and honeyed softness. You want mighty. You want the strong arm of an unshakable grip of God who will not let you go no matter what. You want the angel of the Lord encamped around you to deliver you. And do you know when the, when the Israelites got to the other side of the Red Sea, what they did? They sang. They wrote a song. Exodus 15, the very next chapter, they write a song. You know what the song is about? I will sing to the Lord who is highly exalted. He's thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. Why? Because the Lord is a warrior and the Lord is his name. God is with us. Friends, you can cry to him because he's not only compassionate enough to hear, but he is strong enough to save. And it gets us to our final section here in verses 8 through 22. As David wants us to see, not only can we praise him, not only can we cry out to him, but you can trust him. You can trust him. He goes through a number of different sections in your Bible. These are separated. Uh, these each are describing a different reason why uh, David's trying to pull our hearts towards him to trust. So why can we trust him? Here in verse, starting in verse 8, verses 8 through 10, we can trust him because he provides. We can trust God because he provides. Listen again. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Twice here, you hear the emphasis. David's honing in here. Those who fear God, those who trust him, who follow him, they will not lack any good thing. Why? Because he provides every good thing. He is a God who provides David's trying to draw our hearts to him. To do what? Verse 8, to take refuge in him. To hide ourselves in him. I think it's really what David's getting at here because in verse 8, the beginning of the section, and in verse 22, you see the same phrase, all who take refuge in him will not be punished. I think almost bookends of what David's trying to get us to see here. And everything in between. You can trust him. You can hide in him. You can take refuge in him. You think about being caught in the middle of one of those famous Orlando afternoon showers at two, three, four o'clock every day. It's like, you look at the weather, it's like, you know what, it's just a 5% chance of rain. This will be fine. I'll go outside today. You walk outside and within moments also you look at the radar and it's like these huge red circles just appear. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, just appear on the radar. And then all of a sudden this torrential rain. I grew up in Louisiana, so I'm used to rain. I've been around some hurricanes. The regular afternoon showers in Orlando are unbelievable. And you walk out and it begins to fall. And in that moment, if you're out and about in the middle of that rainstorm, what are you doing? Your eyes are up and you're looking around for anything that you can take shelter under. 
Something that you can go and hide underneath to protect you from these huge raindrops that you're questioning. Is this hail? Is this rain? Goodness, sometimes it may be hail. As we saw, what was it, a couple months ago? It's like every day. It's like, how big will the hell be today? The softball yesterday, golf size today. And you're trying to find anything to find shelter underneath. Your eyes are up, you're looking. When you find something, you look underneath and it's like, okay, it's all wet around it. But underneath there, it's dry. We go and we run and we hide underneath there to protect ourselves from the rain coming down. I think this is what Dave is trying to get us to do here. To see the refuge and the safety and the shelter that we can find in God through Christ. To find refuge in him. That in the midst of all the storms that come through your life, no matter what fear may be overwhelming you, David's wanting us to lift our eyes and see there's a shelter I can hide underneath that can protect me, that I can trust will hold underneath the weight of life's storms to take refuge in him. And again, he begins here in verses eight through 10 by showing that all those who take refuge in him will find everything that they need. Not everything that they want, but everything that they need. This is the promise we see throughout scripture, probably most famously in Psalm 23, the most famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I will lack no good thing. This is the provision of God. The confidence that our shepherd will supply our need. Those who fear him will not lack any good thing. He will not withhold those things from us. And again, how we define good is so important. If we define good by just what we want or what makes our life easier, well, we have misdefined good. But God works good for us in ways that sometimes we won't understand until we stand before him. But we can trust him and find a refuge in him because we can be confident that he will never hold back. He is a generous God and he gives generously. He's not miserly. He's not Ebenezer God. Counting every penny and wondering, oh, I just, uh, they kind of have a lot. I need a little bit more. He gives abundantly, overflowing because there is no end in him. He does not hold back and those who fear him will not lack any good thing. James 1.17 puts it this way, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God loves to give good gifts to his children. And those who fear him will lack nothing. You can trust him because he provides. Second reason David gives here is you can trust him because he also instructs. Verses 11 through 14. Come, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. There's this instruction, this teaching of what it means to live in reverential awe and fear of God. And not shaking, scared, but in reverence and worship and adoration of God. And that kind of reverence, it does something to our lives. It changes and alters our lives. As we begin to then think godly things, say godly things, and do godly things. That our good God is then beginning to shape and form good things in and through us. As they teach us to fear the Lord, those who desire life, loving a long life, to enjoy what is good. And David here begins to talk about godliness, keeping our tongue from evil, your lips from deceitful speech, and turning away from evil and doing what is good, to seek peace and pursue it. 
living a, a godly life, doing what is good, living in obedience, seeing that in following God's design and obeying him, it leads to a long life to enjoy what is good. That doesn't guarantee that if you obey God, you're going to live long. If you don't, you live shorter. But this is getting to a, a connected promise in the Old Testament of the promise of long life, meaning the promise of a, of a fulfilled life through obedience in God by, by living the way in which God has designed. And this is an po- important distinction when talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to obey. Sometimes obedience or being a Christian can be painted as though you're, what you're signing up for is a life of no more fun. I say all the fun stuff you used to do, you can't do anymore. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've got to stop doing your fun stuff and now you go like to church and stuff. What the Bible says is that the true Christian life, obedience to God, isn't removing ourselves from happiness. It's finding true happiness. It's finding the things that your heart was designed for. It's finding real and immovable joy, real blessing, real fulfillment, actual contentment in Christ. This is the promise of Christianity. And this is part of the motivation that David holds out to. There are higher motivations to obey God, absolutely. But the one that he pulls out here is those who desire life and love a long life to enjoy what is good. He says, if you want to enjoy a good life, then model and example a good God. And do what is good. As God instructs us then to live a life that lives in the fear of the Lord. To resemble and model him. Third thing, the reason why we see we can trust him is that he not only provides, he not only instructs, but he also rescues. Verses 15 to 18. Listen to this. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. As I read those verses, I can't help but think of this image in my mind. As our family went to a water park last week on July 4th. And we're in this big wave pool, and this wave pool, it's like nine-foot waves. It's honestly unbelievable that they were able to do this. But still, anyway, there's like this nine-foot wave coming through, and you hear kind of these shouts of excitement, fear, joy. It's kind of everything all at once, every time this wave comes. And along both sides of this wave pool, you see a host of lifeguards. And as these lifeguards are walking, you see their eyes are always scanning. They're always looking. And these lifeguards, their job is twofold. I would hear two things come from their mouth. They're always looking what for those who are in trouble, for those who are crying for help so that they can jump in and rescue them. But they're also doing something else. If there's anybody who, like any young teenage boy, might be tempted to do uh, what we call, growing up in Louisiana, roughhousing, those who are beginning to maybe jump on top of one another, wrestle, they're causing trouble, they're doing things they're not supposed to do. The lifeguard also is to instruct and correct those who are doing what they're not supposed to do. Well, there's no fear like a, uh, a mean 20-something-year-old woman as a lifeguard that sees a teenage boy doing something wrong, and there is this tone in their voice that cuts through everything else and gets you to stop. I don't know what it is. But as I read these verses, I can't help but see the way in which God almost steps in here as a lifeguard for his people. His eyes are on the righteous, always scanning, always looking. His ears are open to their cry for help. 
The moment he hears your cry, he steps into action. There is nothing that will distract him, nothing that will drown you out. But not only that, but the face of the Lord is also set against those who do what is evil. There is judgment coming for those who do the opposite of what God has instructed us to do. To remove all memory of them from the earth. That God is saying that, that those who live for themselves to try to make a name for themselves, they will not be remembered. They will be blotted out in all of eternity. Their memory will be removed. But the righteous, they cry out. And when they cry out, the Lord hears and rescues them from all their trouble. Why? Verse 18. This is one of those verses. Underline, box, highlight. As we get a glimpse into what the character of God is like. And we see that the Lord is near the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. That phrase, the Lord is near to a particular person or to a particular place, it doesn't happen often in Scripture. The two places actually in the Psalms where we hear it is, is here, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. And also in Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call out to him. That's who the Lord is near. And then you hold that up with verses like Isaiah 57, 15. Describe God this way. It says, for the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place. Maybe we can understand that locality of God. He lives in a high and a holy place. He lives in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Yeah, I got that. God lives there. But Isaiah 57, 15 also says this. I live in the high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. Do you see who God is drawn to? He's drawn to those who cry out to him. He's drawn to the brokenhearted. He's drawn to the oppressed, to those lowly of spirit, to those crushed in spirit. Yes, God is in the high and holy places. He is uncreated. He is unsurpassed. He is unequaled. Oh, but friends, he is near those who are hurting. He is next to those who are suffering. And he will rescue those who cry out to him. Final reason that David gives here for, those, for us to be able to trust in him. God not only rescues, but he also redeems. Verses 19 to 22. It begins with being honest in verse 19. One who is righteous has many adversities. There are the one who is righteous, the one who fears the Lord, the one who loves Jesus will have a lot of problems in this life. The Bible is very honest about the human condition. Right, some people may say that if you follow Jesus closer, then God's going to take away your problems. He's going to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. Just read the Bible. It's not in there. God is honest about our life here, that we live in a Genesis 3 broken world, but he promises to be with us, he promises to deliver us through it, and he promises to one day come back again for us and to live forever with him and to undo all that is broken in this world. But here in this life, the one who is righteous has many adversities. Right? It's kind of like the great philosopher, notorious B.I.G., said that you may have mo' money, mo' problems, what David here is saying, mo righteousness, you may have mo problems. 
Friends, the promise of God is not ease. The promise of God is not comfort. The promise of God is rescue. The promise is redemption. The promise is that he won't let you stay in that forever. But one day he will come back and he will wipe away every tear. That's the promise. The Bible is honest. And for those who are righteous, he does rescue them from all their adversities, from all their troubles. He will protect all their bones. Not one of them will be broken. So you will be, uh, you will be crushed but not abandoned. You will be uh, pressed in but not forsaken. You'll be pressed down but not destroyed. That God will preserve you. That evil will bring death to the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. If you do what is good and if you are righteous, God will preserve you, redeem you, and make sure that he will deliver you and you will not be punished. That is a wonderful promise, but there is some bad news in there. What's the bad news? The bad news is that as we read in the Old Testament, as quoted in Romans 3, that there is no one who is righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. And there is no one who does what is good. Not even one. Uh-oh. So it is the righteous, the one who does good, that will be redeemed, that will be protected that will be delivered from punishment but there's no one who's righteous and no one who does good friends that's what Paul goes right into then Romans 3 showing that yes there is no one who is righteous that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and at the foot of the cross there is level playing ground we've all fallen short but our hope and reconciliation to God and our salvation And our redemption is not in our ability to fix ourselves, but is in the acknowledgement that, yes, I'm not righteous. I am not good, and I do not do what is good. But there was one who came and lived here among us, God himself shedding uh, his place in heaven to come down and live here with us, truly God and truly man. And this man, Jesus, this God, Jesus, lived then a life of perfect obedience. He did what was good. He was perfectly righteous. He obeyed God's commands perfectly. And on the cross, after a life of obedience, a life of righteousness, what he did there is he said, Lord, I will take the place of my people, of my sheep, the good shepherd laying down his life. And our sin, our unrighteousness, all those who trust in him was then given to him. And the punishment that was meant for us was placed upon him. So God is not a God who goes, you know what? I'm not gonna give my people punishment. I'm just gonna kind of turn a blind eye. God cannot do that. He is a good judge, and he cannot just turn an eye to our sin, to our rebellion. Our sin must be punished, but our hope is that all those who take refuge in him will not be punished, is that the punishment has been given to someone else in our place. That on the cross, Jesus took it, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That he takes our sin and his righteous record, his perfect life of obedience is then given to us 
It's credited to us. It's credited to all those who believe, or to use the language of Psalm 34, to all those who take refuge in him, to all those who hide themselves in him. We are then freed from our punishment because it was given to someone else in our place. And we can now stand in the hope that our redemption comes not from our effort or for our attempts at goodness, but our redemption comes in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is the hope that David ends with here in Psalm 34, launching our eyes forward and inviting us to trust him. And all of it, I think if you boil it down to one command here in Psalm 34, we kind of read it and glossed over, but I want to go back, I want to highlight and double click it and zoom in as we close here. All of this is an invitation of David to say, would you come and would you yourself taste and see that the Lord is good? It's an invitation not to your mind, but to your experience. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That you can trust him, that you can praise him, that you can cry out to him, that he is who he said he is. And friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, this is the invitation of our text. It's the invitation of so many other places in scripture. And friends, it's the invitation this morning to you. It's not simply to examine the facts. It's for you to come and experience for yourself, is God who he said he is? Well, friends, here's my challenge to you. Taste and see for yourself. Come and see this man, Jesus Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Because then, as we invite others to that experience, we cannot invite others if we haven't tasted ourselves. Friends, maybe you're here and you are a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for years. There's a challenge to us to remind us, have you tasted recently of the Lord's goodness? Do you know for yourself that God is good and that he has been so, so good to you? To taste and see. You can describe honey all you want. You know the most compelling way to get someone to like honey? Make them taste it themselves. You can try to describe a rainbow, but your words will fall flat. But a glance will do more than a thousand sentences would. My friends, this is what we see in Scripture. The invitation is to taste and see, come and see that the Lord is good and that that's the attribute that David chose, inspired by the Spirit. Taste and see that the Lord is not holy here. It's true, it's good. We need to see that. Not righteous, not just, not even merciful or loving. But we taste and see that the Lord is good good there is no evil in him we never have to wonder what his motive is he is always and only good the psalm shows us that you can praise God because he is worthy you can cry out to him because he is listening and you can trust him because he is good there is no situation where our lips cannot praise him There is no situation where the brokenhearted will not find a listening God and a present Savior. There is no situation where God is anything but near. There is no situation where his eye is distracted from his children or his ear is stopped to their cry. There is no situation where his face is not set against our enemies to cut them down and deliver us from our greatest enemies, death and hell. 
The hope-infusing, life-changing, joy-establishing way is to look to him and to taste and see for yourself that he is good and to remind ourselves that he has been so, so good to us. Let's pray. Lord, we...